Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Walter, and in today's episode, I cannot tell you how glad I am to welcome Anthony Dusovich as my guest. Anthony is Vice President Strategic Projects at Suez in North America, the US second largest environmental services firm. In this episode, Anthony will take us back to the roots. Why do we treat water? And what are the challenges that the water industry still needs to address? Among those, why is the PFAS issue suppressing? And by the way, what are PFAS compounds and how are they regulated in water? He'll eventually tell us how to treat those emerging contaminants and explain how Suez uses all its research channels to improve the existing solutions. Finally, Anthony will also give us a glimpse into the future of utilities. We're up for an episode packed with value, so I'll better cut my speech. We're off the races right after the credits. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Anthony. Welcome to the show. I'm very happy to have you. It's been a while since I didn't talk with you, so it's good to have this podcast as an occasion to exchange thoughts with you. And let me start with a European joke. You know, we are recording that on the 6th of November. And to my knowledge, you still don't have a president, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we do have a president, but we don't know who our president will be in January of 2021. So this is going to take a while. You know, this is a process. This is a new process into the world of COVID. It's certainly a test of many things, you know, be it politics, process and everything else. And look, we'll see. You know, all we could do is wait and see. It's like waiting for your child to be born. You don't know which day it'll usually happen. You just wait and see. (laughs) You've actually mentioned the, the, the word of COVID. How is it on your end of the world? Are you also working from home like we do in those days in Europe? Yes, we shut down our office early in March. And the majority of us who are not considered, I hate to use the word, we're not essential employees, but we don't need to be out in the field or operating a plant are working from home. You know, we'll talk a little bit about the business, but, you know, our utilities are essential services that we provide water and wastewater services, and we need to make sure operations run. So we did a lot of work. In the background, ensuring our supply chains were strong, ensuring that managing, you know, who's getting sick, who's not getting sick. We were quite successful. We had a very, very low incidence in uh, Suez, North America of COVID cases. And people worked, you know, when a main break happens, people were out getting the job done. We really tested the resilience of the organization and the people who work in the organization. So, you know, overall, though, we are in a hot spot, as you know, you know, I'm in the New York area, you know, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. This is what we call the tri-state area. So there were restrictions and, um, you know, personal restrictions, uh, some work restrictions, but things marched on. So it was a great testament to the will of a lot of people. That's a positive way to look at things. Well, you've been slightly touching the the element of your your role and your managing aspect, but I was just curious about your path. If, If I'm right, you're coming from a technical background and you eventually made it, if I might say so, to management roles. Can you maybe tell us what were these steps? Absolutely. To understand a bit about my steps, I think you need to understand a little bit about where we come from in the world of Suez. So I know a lot of people know the company, but 
as many of your audience know, Suez is a global group, about 90,000 people strong. You know, our purpose is shaping a sustainable environment now. The vision of the company is to be an agile leader in environmental services by 2030. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean we want to be the biggest company by revenue or by size, but concretely, it means three main things. One is we want to be a partner of choice for customers with innovative solutions and technologies. We want to remain a pioneer and solve the planet's greatest challenges. Our company, whether in the U.S. or in France, has a long history. In France, you know, we were the original developers of the Suez Canal here in the U.S. We started as the Hackensack Water Company of 1859. And we want to focus on our three main strong activities, water waste and smart environmental solutions. It's kind of interesting that in different parts of the world, people see Suez or think of Suez as a different company or different sets of expertise. You know, For example, in some parts of the world, we're known as a waste management and recycling services company. In other parts of the world, we're known as an equipment technology provider or a water concessionaire. If I bring this back home to the United States, People know us as a technology company, which was obviously reinforced by the acquisition of GE Water, and they know us quite well as an operations and maintenance operator. In fact, what I always find really interesting is that here in the U.S., we are one of the top three of 13 major investor-owned, also known as regulated water utility companies, and we serve as the water company for over 2 million people. I needed to tell you that because that ties back to my career. So I started, as you know, we worked together for some years. I started in the technology side of the business. Mm-hmm. I sold equipment and sold technologies to utilities, be they municipal or private utilities. One of one of my customers was a company called United Water, which uh, is Suez Water you regulated utilities today. So I was always intrigued by the regulated business model. It's really, uh, in terms of business, it's a really interesting model, a little bit different than what we're used to. So because of this width and broad depth of Suez, I was able to move on over to understand both the supplier side of the business and get the 360 view as the owner side of the business as well, which is a great opportunity working in a large company like this. So you asked a question about my technical background. Yeah, I started as an engineer. I actually started my career in the defense industry. We were doing radar systems for jet fighters. And about seven years out of school, I moved over into the environmental field, and I kind of never looked back. So I started with a little company called Ozonia at the time, which was partly owned by Suez and partly owned by another major industrial company called Air Liquide. I grew through that company, um, had a lot of great opportunities, started in project management, and eventually became the CEO of the Americas. Is it a typical path in our industry? I think in the large organization industry. It is a pathway. You can start as an engineer and work your way into management. I think there's other ways to get where you want to get as well in our industry. You know, there's plenty of folks who are doing things like in private equity, smaller startup type business. There's a lot of disruption in our industry going on now with all these tiny little startups, you know, seeded venture capital, private equity, and so on. But I'd say it's what you make of it. I'm interested by what you just said about these startups, because I don't know if uh, I wasn't watching before when I was working for Suez, I, I had the impression you, know, you have the big groups and I didn't see the, those startups around. And over the past couple of years, you're right. I think there's just really something happening about disruption, about startups entering that field. What's your take on that? Do you think that's the future of, of our industry to have the, those startups around and, uh, and to have them disrupt Suez and the likes? 
You know, from the disruption point of view, I think I see it as a couple of ways. I see it as potentially disrupting some areas, but potentially complementing other areas. You know, a lot of a lot of the goals of the startup companies aren't necessarily to become the biggest water treatment company or the biggest technology company. We could talk about digital because I think there's a lot there. I think a lot of the goals of these companies are to provide something very unique and then have a big attractive company with a lot of mass in our industrial environment acquire the technology, let's say, or partner on the technology and really create more value added. So I think there's room for both. And I think innovation is driven by that world. And I think it's also a generational thing. There's a new generation of young people coming out of schools and and coming into the workforce. And they're used to things like hackathons and design sprints and all this wonderful stuff. Whereas, you know, our industry followed the old consulting engineering model where you start with a plan and then you do some assessment and then you do some alternatives and then you do designs and then you go on and on and on and on. So I think it's great for the industry and I think it's great for the future. I'm sorry because I took you to a sidetrack, but I was interested by this startup and and disruption aspect because really I think that's that's something which is happening right now. But let's circle back to you. What's your role today? Sure. So today I am part of the utility, regulated utility side of Suez here in North America. I am the vice president of special projects. I'm working on two main initiatives to help the utility out. I'll talk about one of them today mainly. One is really uh, helping our procurement teams do some process improvements and manage vendor resilience and vendor risk. The other is helping the company deal with uh, the issue facing pretty much at least the United States and other parts of the world, is, which is basically getting ready to deal with uh, PFAS regulations. So actually, you, you teased it, uh, PFAS is going to be our deep dive for today. Let me start. I have to be negative sometimes. You know, I'm very positive on that podcast, but let me be now the devil advocate. Back in the time where you, you and I were working at Ozonia, the big topic around those micropollutions in the US was one for dioxin. At that time in Europe, there were regulations about micropollutants, especially in Switzerland. And then there was big discussions around endocrine disruptors. There was microplastics, heavy metals, and all that stuff. And now it's PFAS. So now if really I was to be, I said I'm the devil's advocate, but is it a trend? Is it it a fashion? Or do you think there's a real problem with PFAS? That's a good question. So if I go backwards in time a little bit and say, we as a world community have probably dealt with the most, I'll call it the low-hanging fruit. We've cleaned up the water and the environment in areas where you drink some water, you get sick, you're, you know, you have to run to the bathroom or you die. We've, we've done those very basic fundamental things very well. So they're very apparent you know, that they have those health effects, they were immediate, you can see an immediate payback by doing treatments and so on. Fast forward, we've got, what do we have? We have technology, which is improved, we can measure things to levels that were unheard of years ago. I mean, we're measuring PFAS to the parts per trillion range. That's one. Number two, we're looking at things and trying to figure out, you know, what these health effects really are out into the future, because they may not be as apparent today for us. So is PFAS a thing? I think that science says it's a thing. Was 1,4-Dioxane a thing? Yeah, I think that was a thing too. The question is, with so many things that we can measure today, which thing is the most important thing? At what cost and what technology do you have available to purify or remove some of these things? And you know, you have to kind of pick and choose. And of course, on top of that, there's an industry and regulatory framework around all these chemicals and compounds and things that kind of have a force to play, if I could say that. 
You mentioned the regulation aspect. I did my homework just before our, our discussion. I was checking what is regulated in, in the US. And the only thing I found is PFOA and PFOS. And if I'm right, PFAS is about almost 5,000 different compounds. So is it right that you have two which are regulated and why only two? Good question. So you talk about 5,000 compounds, that, that is a fact, you know, PFOA, PFOS, in some areas like New Jersey, we have a limit on PFNA as well. Those are the long chain compounds, basically. They were deemed early on, they were the, I'll say they were the original developed compounds. And there was research and study then on them by the EPA some time ago, because they were health effects. You know, I go back to Pusik Falls, New York in 2014 or so, there were all these lawsuits and all these health effects found. They were the first ones to be limited because they were the first ones to be looked at by the EPA. The new ones, the shorter chain and, and the ones that have come since, they claim have less health effects, but we don't really know. So the question is 5,000 compounds. The EPA has very strict mandates on how it does its evaluation, time frame, number of contaminants, and so on. So there's a process there. You can't really test 5,000 compounds at once. And you have the technology to test all these 5,000 compounds, or some really better or some worse. What are the compound effects? So there's a lot of questions. So I think you have to start somewhere is ultimately the answer. And that somewhere happens to be the basically PFOA, PFOS, and to some extent PFNA. You mentioned New Jersey to have this additional compound, which is regulated. Is it really only New Jersey or do you have other areas uh, in the States where by the federal aspect, you would have a different compound regulated there that would not be regulated here? That's actually a good regulatory question. Um, so there's a couple things at play here. One is, where's the research and the science on a compound? So the EPA is a federal agency or a federal body that basically tries to create, their mission was to try to create a uniform standard of water quality basically throughout the nation. There's a, an issue, of course, of states' rights as well. You know, the essence of the U.S. Constitution was states versus federal rights. So PFAS, you know, the main concentrations are around industrial areas, folks who produced and used these chemicals and military bases. So once the EPA sets a guideline and, you know, there's a bit of a nuance there, the state's basically requirement is to set guidelines at least as stringent. They can't be less stringent, but they certainly can be more stringent. So yeah, they, there's flexibility to, to set your regulation based on what you see. But For example, a state like New Jersey isn't going to pick PFNA just on their own. There's going to be some science behind it. There'll probably be some regulatory research from the uh, US EPA and other, and other bodies as well. So basically, the federal regulation has to be then translated locally, which sounds a bit like, like it works in Europe. You know, there, there was this water framework directive in the year 2000, and we are, I think, in 2020, and parts of that framework directive are still not translated into every state. So is it similar in the US? Yes, absolutely. To some extent, you know, you basically, if the EPA sets a regulation, like right now, if we stick to the PFAS situation, the EPA is only set what's called a health advisory level, AHAL, at 70 parts per trillion. That is not a regulatory enforceable limit. That's notification that says, hey, you know, your water may contain chemicals to this limit, which we believe may be hazardous to your health. So now the state's in this regard, had the opportunity to stay with the HAL, only provide health advisories or create regulatory limits on their own. Certain states, which have been noted to have 
of course, industrial areas, military bases, and so on, have created their limits. New York and New Jersey. I talked about those states because they're states that are in our territory, if I could say that. So we're focusing on those states. But you know, Michigan as well, a lot of manufacturing. California, you know, others. So there's a wide variety of what people are doing around the country around this issue. I'm curious, just because you mentioned the military, and I know that's one of your field of expertise. What exactly is the military doing, which is generating PFAS? Yeah, so they invented these wonderful compounds called uh, firefighting foams. So basically, on the military sites, they did two things. They did firefighting trainings. And if you have a runway where you have an airplane crashing, skidding out, whatever the case, you might have a fire. You basically, you flood the area with these foams. They immediately put out the fire and they were super, super efficient in that regard. What makes these such a challenge to treat is the fact that they're so effective in what they do, right? So firefighting foams have been the number one issue around military bases. And the federal government around the military bases is looking at another subset of PFAS as well, in addition. And not to get into all the details, but uh, yeah, so there are different things are being looked at by different priority. So from the consumer point of view, I've read that some associations have said that they would like to see a regulation which says PFAS is, is banned in the sense that you should not have more than one part per trillion. And I guess for the 4,700 compounds, which sounds ambitious, how do you come to a deal between consumers and utilities? Because there's a regulation But there is also the fact that you have the end user, a city or a utility in general, and they might have to find a way which might be above the regulation. So. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a good question. So when you talk about 5,000 different types of compounds, the question is, does one treatment serve all of them? We know, for example, that the long chain PFAS and the short chain aren't necessarily treated to the same extent by using activated carbon. Maybe you have to use it ion exchange. Maybe you have to go to RO. Maybe you have to go to other technology. So the question is, how do you solve the issue of 5,000 compounds that are in the water? If we don't have the science yet, it's really hard to say, I'd like to get here. And then the other question is, are all of these 5,000 an issue? Is there a combined effect between? So there's, there's a lot of science that I think that hasn't answered the question. And then you talk about going to one PPT, right? We're talking parts per trillion PFAS isn't just in firefighting foams. It isn't just in your $1,000 waterproof ski suit and all these wonderful things where, you know, what makes these compounds, again, so good is the fact that you don't lose your waterproof on your jacket after one season, right? It's, it's a great, it's a miracle from the, what application it's trying to solve. But on the other hand, you know, this stuff, it's in the carpets, you know, you have stain resistant carpets, you have children. It's funny, there's like, 97, maybe even 98, 99% of the world has found that if you test yourself, there's probably PFAS in your bloodstream or it develops and lands in some of your organs. The question is, is it killing everybody? I don't know. You know, that's the unknown. There might be parts in our blood, but when it comes to find it at the top, I guess not in the same concentration than in our blood. I, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, Uh, I've seen that uh, about 10% of uh, drinking water supplies in the US might be affected by PFAS. And I was wondering, uh, as Suez, do you face those? Are part, are at least a portion of those 10% part of what you're dealing every day? The answer to your question is I think it could be more than 10% of, of the water supplies. You know, it's an interesting, and let me give you some for instances too. You know, you have, and a lot of the 
you know, a lot of these things are being banned and will change in the future, but you have a fire on a roadway, two cars have an accident, there's a fire, the fire department comes, they spray all this foam down, get rid of the fire, clean up, spray it all down, it goes into the, your storm basins, it goes to your sewer systems, and lo and behold, it's in your water supply, right? Groundwater or surface water reservoirs, what have you. So the question is, you know, you start reading something, is it a trend? Does it come, you know, there's airborne, it can float through the air, excuse me. So there's so many ways. So the question is, do we really know? I, I, you know, I don't know exactly what percent. I think it, I would argue it's higher than 10%. So do we as a company have PFAS in our water? Yes. Yeah. So we've obviously been looking at our systems and doing a lot of testing and have noted that there are some systems that have PFAS. Specifically, one system in one of our states had uh, PFAS. We immediately got a mobile unit in place. Uh, it was a smaller system. It was actually a well system. We immediately got a, a rental unit, a mobile treatment unit in place. We ran it. We saw the results were working really well. We turned that into a full-time treatment, and uh, we solved the problem there. So I'd argue that there's going to be a lot of it as these regulations mature and develop and compliance regulatory sampling takes place. The question is dealing with it. How do you actually deal with it? How do you treat it? What do you use? That's a great question. So basically, there are currently, and a lot of the technology people kill me for this, but there's basically today, there's three, what we call best available or very common technologies that are proven. There's granular activated carbon, there's ion exchange resins, and there's basically reverse osmosis. The industry is dealing with it. Those who needed you know, to do something and using today's technology that we know works, that is not creating new problems from the treatment point of view. There's other problems we could talk about later, but uh, are using these, these three technologies. Now, which technology you use is highly dependent on your application and, and what you're trying to solve for. You may go, you know, granular activated carbon, probably the most common with IX the second and RO being third. And, you know, the reason RO is most likely third is because it's got a lot of pressure that's required. So if you have a major plant and you need to distribute water to your customers through their pipes at a certain minimum pressure, which is regulated as well, and you put these massive tanks in place, you've got a head loss issue. So you need to deal with that. So you need to create a lot of pumping. That pumping creates a lot of additional costs and usage of energy and so on and so forth. So it's about finding the right application for the right problem. Now, these three technologies create their own problems. What do you do with spent carbon, resins, you know, concentrated waste streams from RO we could talk about? So the industry is working really hard to look for a complete destruction type technology. You know, as we, we worked years ago on AOP type processes, we were trying to totally destroy micropollutants. The question is, what are you converting things into? Are you completely destroying or creating new forms? So, so there's a lot of research going on in that field now. Um, that will be the future, I think, if somebody finds the right solution there or when they find the right solution there, because I think we're all racing for that solution as well. Do you think it's, it's going to be a one-size-fits-all or there will be a solution suited to every type or family of PFAS? I think there'll be different solutions for different families of PFAS, ultimately. If we had to put a system in place today, we'd be looking at putting in granular activated carbon or ion exchange resins. In drinking water, for example, if we put in RO, you know, you strip everything out of drinking water, right? If you put RO and you have this ultra pure water in a drinking water plant, that could have some negative effects. You know, you've got areas that have older pipes 
pipes with lead. We've got a lead and copper rule here in the United States. And you might be stripping out things like minerals that prevent the rent against corrosion and expose lead back into the water stream, for example. So it's not a it's not a one size fits all solution for sure. It's definitely an engineered solution. And I think that engineered solution really and companies are working on it as, as well as we are doing research on happens to be a destruction technology as well. You mentioned the activated carbon and you mentioned the micropollutants as well. It's pretty interesting because if I compare it to, to uh, how it's dealt in Europe, you have countries which says they want to regulate micropollutants from the drinking water. So it, that's to that extent, it's pretty similar to what you're doing with PFAS. But you have other countries like Switzerland, which says water is a, is a cycle at the end of the day. So if you remove it from the wastewater, you also remove it for the environment in between. And then when it comes back to drinking water, you're free of those compounds. And what they use half of the time might be ozone, but the other half of the time is activated carbon. So it, it's similar technologies. So why would you concentrate on drinking water when it comes to removing PFAS? Would wastewater treatment be an alternative? Well, you've just hit on the next big nerve and the next big trend, actually. So the Safe Drinking Water Act regulates water. The Clean Water Act regulates what you could put back into a body of water. So as drinking water regulations here in the U.S. are forming, the next question is what happens to your wastewater systems, right? Can we just inject this PFAS water into it there? And you create two problems. One is you're releasing potentially PFAS-laden water into your, you know, through your outfalls and back into the rivers, lakes, stream, ground, what have you. The other is we've got a big business here called biosolids, right? Where we take the sludge and we process it and we turn it into fertilizers and composts and we feed animals with it and we grow farms with it and so on and so forth. So what happens to sludge that has PFAS remaining in it that gets spread? So you basically never break the cycle. So that is absolutely part of the equation. Why it's currently being driven by the water side of the business, I believe has to do number one with the regulation um, because it's the Safe Drinking Water Act regulation, not the Clean Water Act regulation. I think the other issue is also to try to reduce the use of some of these chemicals. You know, these are forever chemicals. They're produced industrially. And if we could reduce their usage, obviously you could reduce ultimately what you have to treat to as well, but that'll be a long time coming because they've been in use for, you know, 70, 80 years to some extent. But um Yeah, so um, I want to say on the on the wastewater front, absolutely, that's that is coming. You're in charge of special projects, right? So PFAS today is still a special project. At some point, I, I guess it has to transfer to something which is daily business, if that really comes to be daily business. Actually, I mean, it's it's in the name. How do you handle those those special projects today? It is really an extension of our capital improvement program. So you know, a regulated utility has to put together, you know, short, medium and long-term capital plans, right? And those capital plans include everything we do, whether it's fixing pipes, fixing hydrants, replacing and fixing plants, increasing service territory by extending pipes and so on. PFAS, because it's such a large program in itself and implications are around all of our utilities, the company decided to take an all of Suez approach, I'll call it. So it's not special in the fact that it's something that's unique and one-off. It's special in the effect that it's a large program that sits side by side with our normal capital process. And we're not only working in collaboration with typical engineering firms and contractors, we're working with our CIRSE, our research labs around the world, and of course, our WTS colleagues who are technology providers and coming up with a Suez solution, if I could say that, to address not only our utilities, but the market. 
So does that mean that you you are able as you as 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 one of these giants of that world of, of that water world? Are you able to have everything in house, or do you also partner externally? You you mentioned the startups, for instance. Would it be possible for a startup to come with a very clever take on PFAS, and then you would be partnering with them? Yeah, I mean, you know, Suez looks at innovation, you know, we look at it as, as open innovation, right? We don't have to believe that we are the only ones who can invent something and it's got to come out of our lab. I think the world has basically proven that open innovation is the way to really be innovative. So all of the above is an option. You know, Suez has a venture called Suez Ventures, which tries to invest in seed level companies and then potentially decide if they want to acquire more fully acquire or, you know, let go of these investments. So I think all those options are available and on the table. Suez has got a lot of experience treating water. For example, on the GAC front, uh, granular activated carbon front, you know, we're not a carbon producer or provider, but we're a process expert. Same with IX, we're not producing our own resin, but we are certainly a, uh, a process expert there as well. And RO, you know, when we acquired GE, we became one of the biggest RO companies in the world. So we have that technology in-house. So I say it's a bit of all of the above. And what about the costs? I guess that if, if you're adding an RO step, which is now the extreme case, if I get you right, but same with ion exchange and, and activated carbon to a lesser extent, but that has an impact on costs. So does that mean that with your other hats where you're trying to bring more efficiency, you can compensate your hats where you are bringing more treatment capacity? Or does that mean that at some point there's going to be a price increase? The two sides of Suez, right? One is a technology provider. You like the fact that you may sell a lot of equipment to utilities over the next few years. I mean, regulation typically drives our industry, right? The other is a regulated utility where we're the water company and we have a duty to do prudent investment means that you need to make sure that you're protecting your customer, your rate payer, and making sure they're not paying more for the service than they should. So I think Suez on both regards, you know, if you come up with a solution that is the best cost solution from the life cycle cost, customer bill side, there certainly is an impact to customer bill. I can't see how you would, you know, add more treatment and not have an impact to a customer bill. That just that's pretty natural in that regard. But how can you minimize that and give them water at the, you know, basically right level of compliance, balancing OPEX, CAPEX, you know, total cost of ownership type of thing. So in that regard, yeah, I think Suez is probably well positioned to help find those solutions as well. How can I understand this special project aspect? Does that mean that you're going to develop that actually like an internal startup? Uh, you, you would be growing the solution. I don't know if my analogy is right, but <laughs> you would be growing the solution up to the point where it can be industrialized Suez-wide, and then you would pick another topic. On this particular one, I am working on behalf of the utility to help drive and look for solutions that help our ratepayer achieve compliance at the best cost to our ratepayer and protection for our customer. WTS is on the side of us basically looking for solutions that maybe are go beyond Suez internal and could become a business, you know, create a larger business case. And those two things, you know, I think they go pretty well hand in hand in that regard. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but, you know, we have a need. We have on both fronts, you know, one is a utility, the other is a supplier. And maybe we could solve two problems with one. Suez is in a kind of a unique situation among water companies or environmental companies around the world is that we happen to have treatment facilities that we own. So we have the water, we have the operators, we have the data analysis, the water quality folks. And we have technologies. So if we marry those two together, 
we can create winning advantages. You know, you remember the old days where we had to go to, you know, clients and beg them to take a pilot or rent a <laughs> pilot to them, try to get some results, hope they share and so on. Well, right here, right now, we've got an opportunity, which is a little different than that. So we're going to try to leverage it. Well, basically, if I reframe my question, I think it was kind of a crystal ball question. Let's say we are five years down the line and uh, you've worked so well with uh, the internal stakeholders and external partners that PFAS is now considered something that can be part of daily business. What would be the next challenge that you have to pick up in this uh, US utility world? See what you're saying. So very good question. There's so many challenges in utilities. One is the amount of infrastructure work that's required versus the amount of capital that's available. So that's a challenge is always looking for better solutions, which are cost effective and technically effective. I think, you know, if I look at the industry as a whole, let's say, you know, the big challenge going forward is going to be, and it's a subject we could talk about, you know, as two podcasts or three maybe, but is really the, the development of the digital utility. I think there you're touching a nerve, but I think if we start discussing the digital utility, I, I definitely think we, we, we have to reschedule a, a second podcast. <laughs> exactly. exactly. I agree. agree. That's actually a good idea. Let's take that one and put it aside. So the digital utility is one aspect, but when you're, you're mentioning all of that, is it utility and infrastructure in the, in the sense of the networks or in the, in the sense of the treatment plants? Where is the next big deal? So I think it ties into a little bit of both, but if I focus on the networks, this is kind of where the digital utility does become important. So we won't focus on the digital piece, but we'll focus on, you know, we've got thousands of miles of pipeline in our own utilities, never mind how many are in, you know, around the nation and around the world. There are more and more sensors going into these pipelines. There are decisions to be made that we know the characteristics of pipe, the age, we've got this huge database of pipe. The question is, how do you choose, where do you put your money to replace the next section of pipe or refurbish the next asset that provides the best value, right? I mean, we could look at something and say, hey, this is the oldest pipe, let's replace it next. That's not necessarily the answer. Or this is the type of pipe that was very failure prone because it was built in a certain time frame and it's of a certain material, we should replace that. That's part of the answer too, but it's not the whole answer. So it's how do you take all these scenarios and do something that humans on spreadsheets can't do right now to do all the what-if analysis, use machine learning to help make the best decisions. So yeah, networks is absolutely a challenge here in the US and we've been ramping up our efforts on network rehabilitation and renewal for quite a while. Plants, you know, some of it is general operations and maintenance and other is what other regulations come down the line. You know, you typically don't add treatment when you're basically fully compliant, you're producing good quality water and there's no regulation in place. You know what? That's the perfect teaser. So I'm going to stop that part for now. And I propose to switch to the rapid fire questions. And I promise you, just after we close this episode, we have to find a date because I definitely want to discuss digital utility with you. It's time for the rapid fire questions. Within the rapid fire questions, it's a simple rule, short questions aiming for short answers. Of course, I don't cut the microphone, so don't feel restricted if you need to explain a bit what you're saying and you're, you're going to see that the one talking the most is, is going to be me, like always. But <laughs> my first question would be, what is the most exciting project that you've been working on and why? 
there's two things I need to talk about. One is when I took over in Light Ozonia, we had a three-year plan to nearly double the growth of the company, and we did that. So that was absolutely a fantastic and exciting time in my career, and I think for most people who worked at Ozonia. Second is when I moved over to the utility world, I was asked to start up a new business where we provide utility services to the United States military. It was a business we knew nothing about. We had utility references as a municipal owner, but we knew nothing about the client. And it was really exciting developing a new client base, developing a reputation and getting and developing some traction with this new customer. So the reason I get excited about those things is I love the growth story. I love the leadership story and I love developing new business. That sounds awesome. I, I mean, I don't know how much you can say about what you did with the military, because, you know, I, I've seen all those Hollywood movies, so I know that uh, maybe 90% of it is uh, secret. But <laughs> just if you had to pitch it in just one phrase, what was it about? The military has a mission, which we know very well. Our job was to help the military focus on their mission and with bringing our expertise into focus on ours. Crystal clear. <laughs> So let me go to the next one. What's your favorite part of your current job? Very good question. So I truly believe that I'm doing my part to help tackle one of the biggest trends and challenges in our industry today. And I like the fact that even though we're kind of remote, I'm engaging with so many internal and external partners. So next to PFAS and to digital utilities, which we already addressed, what is the trend to watch in our water industry? <laughs> well, I did have digital utility on my mind, so we kind of talk, <laughs> took that one out. But there's one. I'm going to take you in a totally different direction. It's one that I guess I'm a uh, you know I'm a I'm a natural curious person about trends of business in general, not just technologies and so on. Social impact investing, you know, looking at triple bottom line impacts for me is just something that is really changed in this country. It might have been ahead in Europe, but you know, moving from the old Milton Friedman concept of shareholder value as the only business driver to value for all stakeholders, that's huge for me. That's really a good one. Never heard that one. So it's uh, an authentic take and I, I love it, to be honest. What is the thing you care about the most when you're working on a new project and what is the one you care the less? I think when you take on any new project or business venture, you know, The goal of any project worth doing has to have purpose. It's got to create value and provide some kind of benefits to stakeholders. So if you've got something like that, whether it's a treatment opportunity, whether it's a financial model, whatever the case may be, I think it's worth doing. When you talk about things I hate the least, um, I'm not a big fan of overly heavy and burdensome reporting. If KPIs can't be simple, they're not understandable, you could be sure that the results end up the same way. So I come to the two last ones. Do you have sources to recommend to keep up with the water and wastewater market trends? Absolutely. If you're thinking about things like business trends, what's gapping in the mergers and acquisition space, uh, what are companies doing? I think global water intelligence and blue field research are two great uh, resources. If you're thinking technology, regulatory, uh, here in the US, the American Water Works Association and the Water Environment, Federation, the AWWA and WEF are great resources. And of course, let's not forget LinkedIn, especially the Don't Waste Water podcast. That's a wonderful recommendation. Thanks for that one. <laughs> By the way, you mentioned WEF. Did you attend WEF Tech? Everything was virtual this year. So we did it all on uh, Zooms and, and, and pre-recorded messages and things like that. You missed the touch, you know, somebody who likes to be in, around people and in front of people and always like talking to people about new things. It was a little bit more difficult, but it's the world we live in. I'm actually doing a 
variety of conferences this year that way. I've got one this afternoon I'll be joining for a little while. But so it's you make the best of the situation you have. And that leads me to my last question. Would you have someone to recommend that we should definitely invite to this microphone? Absolutely. So if you want to talk about digital utility, I'm happy to do it. But if you want to give the mic to someone else, I've, we've got a fellow in our group named Edward Hackney, H-A-C-K-N-E-Y, who would be a great resource. I'd also like to bring up one more. If you want to talk more about social impact investing, there's a great friend of mine. Her name is Ursula Boehm, B-O-E-H-M. She's with the Florida Social Impact Fund. And just to leave you with this thought, there's about $250 billion in capital in social impact investing funds currently. It's a really interesting way to look at things. Well, that sounds really fascinating. So I think uh, I'm going to follow the, your, your advice. And of course, I'd like to talk with you about digital utilities. So um, maybe we'll have more than one interview. But anyways, Anthony, thanks a lot for your time. Thanks a lot for all the wisdom that you shared. And as I said, I would be really, really happy to have a follow-up episode with you. So I hope we can put that together. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the invitation. And I'm always looking to uh, you know, catch up and talk to folks. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you, even though it's been many, many years. And good luck with your podcast. You're really doing a great thing for our industry with it. So, And I uh, hope we talk soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time. Yeah.